everybody has some creative juice in them in some way. My wife paints, creates beautiful kids, but everybody has some need to fulfill some outlet of seeing their work grow. It's a natural thing anthropologically as people from the earliest people, seeing outcomes of what you do and seeing that it pays off. It's the very core of work in general is there is some purpose to this. I'm having some outcome that's meaningful. I 100% agree that it doesn't have to be at your full-time job, but there is a matter of creative function of seeing, you know, investing in something and seeing it improve. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Brian, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. You just mentioned no expectations. That's good. If you keep the bar low for me, then I can barely <laughs> just get my butt over it. I start all of these things the same way. I'll read your background back to you. I'll screw it up. You tell me what I screw <laughs> up, and then we'll go from there. Sounds good. All right. You got your BA in history from Franciscan University of St Steubenville? That's right. Wow. Home of Dean Martin and Wu-Tang Clan. Are you serious? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's it. The school of 3,000... Students. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then uh, you went to CaseWise. That was the start of your sales career. You did that for about a year. Then you went to IDS Shear, which was acquired by AG Software at some point. You did that for four years. And then Cognos, you were there like as an enterprise AE or a majors AE. You did that for three years-ish. Yep. And that was acquired by IBM at some point. Right. And then you went to DNB, Dun & Bradstreet. And you were, I think, probably your first sales leadership gig. Is that? Yeah. Is that right? Okay. And you did that for two years. Then you went to Optier. You were a sales director there, ran a team that was acquired by SAP. That's correct. Okay. And you can't even remember. You're not, yeah, even, yeah. You're not even sure anymore. Yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, that's so right. many acquisitions, yeah. you just get them all mixed up. And then you went to Click with that's AQ. Right. You had a really nice run there, five years. Yep. First four and a half was as the VP of sales. And then you were the president for six months. You left. You went to App Dynamics for call it a year, year and a half as the VP of sales, ThoughtSpot as the CRO for four years. And then as of eight, nine months ago, Rubrik CRO. Yeah. So a couple slight changes. So you can call them mistakes. I was at ThoughtSpot for two and a half years and then jumped to Rubrik about <laughs> nine months ago. The Dun & Bradstreet was actually a company they had acquired called Purisma, which mm -hmm. did uh, master data management, small little Silicon Valley tech company that DMB acquired mm -hmm. and ran separately. And then they actually divested that company yeah. to SAP. So the Purisma piece of the business got divested, SAP picked it up, and it became part of their master data management platform. Okay. And then Optier also was like a divestiture of the product mm -hmm. over into uh, SAP, but I never actually went and became an employee of SAP. 
What was your first ever job where Brian got paid? Doesn't have to be like yeah. a W-2, but no, no, no. paid. Well, I wanted 12 kids. So I'm the 10th of 12 children and big, you know, Irish family. And my uh, older brother, Jimmy, started a construction company shortly after my dad passed away. My dad died when I was about six. And so my mom was widowed with a bunch of kids. And it was one of those deals where work was just part of everybody kind of chipped in. Everybody did their part. And so I was able to work with my brother, Jim, doing laboring at a real young age. I remember him picking me up and I might've been in fifth grade or so and him handing me a crisp $50 bill after cleaning up bricks all day. But prior to that, I had a paper out like many young kids delivering the Times Chronicle in Jenkintown. And I also worked for my brother, Sean, he was running a retail operation for air gas, and he would bring me in for labor as well. And I did that throughout the elementary years, like I would say those fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, between working for my brother's construction company and working for my brother Sean, and then was waiting tables in high school. So in high school and college, I worked for my brother Jim's construction company and also waited tables. And that's kind of how I got through school. First actual grown-up professional job was actually selling insurance. I worked for Northwestern Mutual, and I actually got that gig prior to finishing school. So my last year there, I ended up getting a gig with Kevin Hassan's group in Philadelphia selling life insurance, and that was awesome, actually. I was 20 years old, pounding phones at 6 a.m., chasing down wedding announcements in newspapers and trying to track people down and call them. It was good. I, I actually really enjoyed it. I still look at life insurance as an, one of those things that is a meaningful thing to yeah. sell. Like I know you can have the other way of looking at it, but as somebody that grew up and had their dad pass away and grew up the hard way, not having a lot, I always thought, shit, man, that, that would have been good to have some life insurance. Oh my! And so selling it was something I believed in and it came natural to me. And so I had this pace setter 40 award, which is like 40 lives in the first six months of selling insurance. And that went really well. I loved it. I felt like it was meaningful. I felt like I was making an impact in people's lives. Can I ask about some of your family? Oh yeah, please. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Do absolutely. you mind? No, everything's fair game. Okay. I'm sorry about your father. I, I'd love to just get into your brain at that point in your life. And I ask because the show has grit in it. And I had Mike Clavel, the striped CRO on, and he had lost his wife to cancer. And his kids were eight, 10, and 12. And in some way, obviously, it was the most traumatic, difficult experience. And in others, it built this incredible coat of armor and taught them at such a young age about life and how hard it is. I don't know. Were you even old enough to process what was happening? And you were the third youngest. So you could see your siblings struggling. And that was probably a signal to you in some way. Yeah. So my uh, family was the blue collar family anyway. Like my dad drove a cab and worked on the docks unloading freight, which we could use right now, by the way, mm -hmm. with a delay in okay. supply chain in the world. And he was a janitor at our local parish. So he worked three jobs regularly 
And if you ever asked him, big Jim McCarthy, a big guy, big Irish guy, great, great dude. But if you ever asked him, hey, how's work? He would always say, I'm blessed with work. He never had bitterness. He kind of looked at that work was a blessing and a privilege. And whatever he did, he looked at it as like, I'm going to do the best I possibly can. He had a crazy past. I won't go into all the details. Some of them were sorted. But he had a transformational life in that he was doing things that weren't always above board, working with gambling and things of that nature, and had like a, call it like a religious experience and felt like I couldn't do that anymore. And so he only went to 10th grade. My mom only went to ninth grade and they both found faith. And as a result, walked away from criminal life, you know? In Philly. Yeah. And this is years before I was born, but with limited education, they jumped in to figure out, all right, well, I can outwork people. And that's what he did. He just went about it and was filled with gratitude for it. I'll never forget though. And the story, I was five, right? So maybe it's folklore. Maybe it's my memory. I always try to like put it together the right way. I remember talking with my brother, Sean, about it. And my dad died of cancer. He was young, 51, but he was blessed to have time, 10 months or so to be able to deliver a message and really it wasn't sudden. So he was able to kind of give all the parting gifts to the kids that he wanted to. One day he was at Immaculate Conception in Jenkintown Parish and he was mopping the floor, sat me on the desk. And as he's mopping the floor, he looks at it and says, son, you see this floor? You could eat off this floor. It's so clean. And I said, yeah, pop, it is. He goes, you know why? I said, no, I, I don't know why. And he said, because Jim McCarthy cleaned this floor. And then he stopped and he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you're going to do in your life or what you're going to be, but I assure you this, if whatever you do, you're willing to put your name on it, then you'll be a success in it. And that was his way. That was his gift basically is whether you're a janitor or CEO of JP Morgan Chase, integrity and pride of work was a gift and nobody can take that from you. And so that became a really foundationally forming component of my life is A, work was a gift, not something that anybody owed me. And what I owed work was my best, that I would be willing to say, hey, this is Brian McCarthy, son of Jim McCarthy's work. You know, this is good legacy, good stuff. And my whole family was that way. So all 12 of us, we all live within like 45 minutes of each other. Nobody Still, moved. Nobody moved. Yeah. What an incredible story. Yeah. Like over 20 years, I've had so many VCs and Silicon Valley. Try to get you out of Philly. Yeah, come to come to uh, California. <laughs> no I'm like, zero, man. Never well, happening. What an incredible story, by the way. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Can I keep asking? Like, Please. So I imagine, especially because you're not living in the upper class of Philly at that point, it doesn't sound like, there's 11 other kids in the house. And mom, the house was already crowded. Dad was already running three jobs. First of all, were you guys on top of each other? And I guess second of all, did all of a sudden, and again, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes, did that sense of responsibility come on to you at a pretty early age? Because like, hey, we kind of got to take care of each other. Yeah, I would say there's two things that can happen to a family when you have tragedy like that. 
you can either fisher, everyone goes their own ways and like, hey, I got to take care of myself. Or you come together and have each other's backs. And that was what it was. It was like my mom wrapped her mantle around us, wrapped her arms around us. I had a lot of older siblings, right? So the age range was like two to like 21, right? So some of them were already out of the house on their own working and everyone took care of each other. It felt like I had a couple father figures in my older brothers and a couple extra pair of hands helping my mom out, my older sisters. So what we lacked in finances, which our financial freedom, I would say, which we did, like, there's no doubt about it. We were growing up, like, we were the family that was the school project. And I'll never forget realizing that one time in high school when the school was, you know, as part of the community project was to get a turkey for Thanksgiving and gifts together for a family in need and found out that the family in need was me and I was part of the group. And it was kind of like an embarrassing thing at one point. And I was like, oh man, you know, but as I look back and even at the time, I got to say, I was blessed with this feeling of gratitude because I never felt ever, and I really mean this, I never felt that I was without. I always felt like I had what I needed. It was a lot of hand-me-down clothes, but I always felt like I had what I needed. And mostly I felt very loved growing up. And when I look around, I see, I see all kinds of poverty. Some kinds of poverty is material. And then there's people that grow up with all kinds of material things, but have great poverty of love. They don't know their parents. Family doesn't talk to each other. And so where we were poor in material things, we were very rich in affection and love in having each other's backs. My personal upbringing, I had zero self-doubt. Well, I have goosebumps and I think the audience probably does too. It's, it's absolutely incredible. But you don't know this, but I've actually, nobody even listening probably knows this, but I've been traveling since June of COVID of last year. So a year and a half. When COVID hit, I took two, three months and did nothing like everybody else. And then I was in San Francisco and I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't just sit here alone in my place in San Francisco. And so I was like, I'm going to travel and I'm going to get a COVID test sent to me every week, no matter where I am, up to like 55 or whatever. And I went everywhere and got rid of my place in San Francisco, moved my entire life into storage, ended up selling my car. And even now still, like we're in New York City. And of course, like I'm super lucky. Like I work for Kleiner and like life's good. I have a job, all that. All I travel around with is a suitcase and my golf bag. That's so awesome. And the, the golf bag, the golf bag is, of course, I want to have my sticks wherever I go, but it's for a couple extra pairs of shoes and the sweaters that don't fit. Because I, I refuse to bring anything but a carry-on, the away bag with me. And I'll tell you, and I'll, and I'll relate it back to what you were just saying, like I've never been happier in my life and I've never had so little. All of the things that I always thought that I needed, my nice car, the nice apartment, all of that stuff. I don't have any of that. I mean, I don't cook anymore, so yeah. you know, but a gym, like all of these things that I used as my like identity, as my crutch for what I thought was like fulfillment. I've never been happier in my life having so little. Now, granted, when I leave after a few months, I wear my clothes ragged. So I'll go to Goodwill or give it to yeah. a homeless guy. I have yeah, to buy yeah. some new clothes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I can't for a year and a half yeah. keep doing the same clothes. Otherwise my pictures would all look the same. But the moral of the story is I've never 
had so little, generally speaking, in terms of things and have never been so happy. Yeah, man. There's freedom in it. That was our story, actually, as a young married couple. So my wife, Chrissy— Can you on your wife thing before you get into the story? You mentioned something that I wrote down. You graduated college a year early because you were nervous that if she graduated a year before you, that she was going to leave. Are you serious? Yeah, just a little bit because she was awesome. So I felt like I outkicked my coverage. And uh, so I— And it turns out you're, you're still together. Yeah, 20 years of marriage. So you're, so, you're dead yeah, on. Yeah, she's phenomenal. She's definitely by far my better half. Actually, I was just was honored by my university a few weeks ago as like business person of the year kind of thing. And wow, they, they come in for a banquet and they give you an award and you have to give a few comments and— I got choked up because I was looking at her and I just said, and Chrissy, she's been a stay-at-home mom. We have five kids and she probably doesn't get near the credit for all the things that she's done to help build companies because the reality is she has been my, probably the person I most go to for wisdom, bounce things off of, listens. She knows more about end of quarter than anybody needs to know about end of quarter. (laughs) She stressed through it all. I jokingly said, I'm pretty sure she prayed our way into some blowout quarters, but it's true. She's just been a best friend to me for years. And the cool thing about Chrissy and I is neither of us came from a tremendous amount, right? Like- I interrupted your story, by the way. But the point is she's a brilliant kid, graduated summa cum laude from school and could have probably done whatever she wanted. But she took a shot on this goofy kid, me. And I started dating her right when I got to school. And I'll never forget. I remember at orientation freshman year, and I saw her walking down. They had this dance. And she had like this yellow and blue dress, empire-waisted dress. She started walking down. I was just blown away. I thought she was beautiful. Went up and asked her to dance. And literally within a few weeks, we started dating. And... She was great, great friend, became a tremendous friend to me. And what ended up happening is I knew I wanted to build a life with her. But she grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I grew up in Philadelphia. And I remember saying to her about six months into Dayton, hey, and I'm a kid, I'm 19, right? And I remember saying, hey, if we're going to build a life together, there's one thing that you need to know. I'm not leaving Philly. I'm not moving. (laughs) (laughs) And and so before this gets like we're too in love, because that's something you could deal with? And she said, yeah. And so we got married young, right after school, graduated in May, got married August 11th. And I was working at Northwestern Mutual, no salary, nothing, just pure commission. She got a job marketing at a small company, but we weren't making much at all. Literally, we had a apartment that was $520 a month, bare nothing, Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. And we were just kind of building a life together. And how happy were you? Yeah, we were very happy. We had like, it was amazing, but it was, you know, it was hard because we had months where it was like, hey, we had a really good month, so a lot of insurance. The next month it was like, hey, we didn't do anything. And so it was kind of one of those things where I look back and feel tremendously blessed that we grew up and built everything together yeah. versus like, you know, we both had a bunch and came together with it and had to figure it out. And so that was really fortunate. But then I got into software as you said, I you know, got a break really into being an inside sales rep, which was paying me 50000 a year as a salary plus commission, my first software sales job. 
And I was blown away because I had no experience. I was selling insurance for six months. And typically you have to start really as like a BDR, mm -hmm. you know, inbound, outbound. And I got to be like quota carrying right away. And this, it was a, a break really. And I had figured out about 30 days into it, how to reverse engineer to be successful in the role. It was like, hey, if I make 40 dials, out of 40 dials, I'll get a hold of 10 people. If I get a hold of 10 people, I can book three meetings. And if I meet with three people, I know I can get one sale. So then it just became a, a lever game. All right, just make more calls. And so I was able to go out and make more calls than everyone else. And then uh, I got another opportunity to go to Idea Shear, which was a publicly traded company about 100 million at the time and growing, selling business process management as a field rep. And there I was, I was 22, field rep. And from those years, like 22, 23, 24, 25, it was four years, we had a lot of financial success. It was like consistently blowing out the number top rep for Idea Shear. Chrissy and I both came to this point where we're like, is this what life is? <laughs> we're young, 25. We had two kids. Anna and Aiden at the time, and we just bought a house, our first house, and life was good. We had more than we needed for sure. We were making, anybody listening probably knows what enterprise software salespeople are making. So we were making good money, blowing out numbers, but it felt weird. And I'll be honest, I remember feeling like this can't be all life is, that you just go make a bunch of money, take care of your kids, and there has to be more meaning, more purpose to this. And so Chrissy and I, kind of made a decision to quit. And I was like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go move to Mexico. And uh, there's this company called the Family Missions Company that builds houses for poor and, and those that don't have the means to build houses. That was the plan. So, so I went in to the office to quit and to sell everything and to move to Mexico to go become a missionary, basically, at like 25, almost 26. Really at the peak, of like four straight years of just blowing it out. And this gentleman named Raphael Bloda works at Click now. He's a great guy. He was the one who was running the America's sales team at Idea Shear. I went in to thank him for giving me an opportunity, give me a shot in enterprise sales and told him I was going to be leaving. When I walked in, I just said, hey, Raph, I, I got some bad news. I'm going to be I'm going to be giving you my notice. So I'm going to be leaving. And he kind of like jumped out of the seat and he's this awesome Panamanian guy. And he quick shuts the door. He's like, sit down, sit down. <laughs> and where are you going? He says, and he must've thought I was going to a competitor sure. or something. And I said, that's not that Raph. I'm, I'm going to Mexico. And he's like, Mexico. Well, what's in Mexico? So I'm going to, I'm going to go be a missionary. I'm going to go build houses for people that are less fortunate. And he said, oh, wow. I had no idea that you were great at building houses. And, <laughs> and I just started laughing at just like that. I was like, well, Raph, I don't know if I'm any good at building houses. I've never built a house before. And he goes, oh, but you're really handy, right? I said, no, not particularly. And I wasn't. I wasn't real handy. And he said, well, can I ask you a question? And I'm not trying to deter you, but do you think you can build more houses with your commission checks or with your hands? And like it changed my life. And I give him a lot of credit for that. I mean, you know, he gave me purpose and was able to make a career in enterprise software be a mission versus a mercenary. It was enabled me to say, hey, I'm not building wealth just for myself. I'm not going to go out and just, it's not just about selling software. It's about making an impact on our customers, 
our partners would then be when I moved into leadership, teaching other people how to do what I did so that they could make an impact on their lives. Yeah, sure. It's nice. We have nice things and we're certainly blessed financially, but it also enabled us to make a financial impact in our communities and things that we cared about. So suddenly when you're beat and you're tired and you feel like, shit, I can't get on another plane or fly another to another city, you realize that it's not about putting a few extra bucks in a bank account that already has plenty in it. It's about certain missions and people and, and folks that are counting on you. And it gives you like a bit of different supernatural strength to be able to push through hard times when you realize that you're not working for yourself. The hairs on my arm have been standing up for literally 30 minutes straight. Holy shit, I don't even know. Where. This is incredible. You go to Click, and you're, by my approximation, about 30 years old, and you're the VP of sales there. Yep. I came in, actually, to run mid-market, and I never run mid-market for my life, actually, but the guy who was running worldwide sales at Dun & Bradstreet, who acquired Purisma, was a guy by the name of Jody Bartolomeo, a great guy. He now works in VC. He was a CRO, took Pluralsight Public, was president before me at Click. And he brought me over to Click. And we had developed a friendship through my time at Purisma and him running sales at DMB. And we actually went to dinner, a steakhouse, and he was he put the full court press on and said, you know, I, I want you to lead the mid-market team. Never done that in my life, man. I've never run mid-market. I've, you know, when I was at Cognos, I ran like key enterprise. I was leading key enterprise accounts. When I was at ID Share, I was calling on Siemens and big accounts. But Joe believed in me a lot. And two, also said, I need to bring enterprise sales execution into the mid-market big opportunity. And I trusted him. I jumped in and we were really successful. There was another guy by the name of Gabe Caviacoli, who also used to work at Dun & Bradstreet. He at the time was running all of mid-market and partners. So I worked for him first, did that for about a year. It became one of the most successful, it became the most probably successful against plan part of Click. We crushed. Then Gabe ended up moving over to a different part of the business, and I started running all of what was called we called it commercial, which was mid-market plus the inside sales, SMB, so field mid-market. We hired a few leaders out, built teams across them. That piece of the business grew tremendously fast and then eventually took over enterprise. And Joe left to go run Pluralsight and take them public. And eventually I moved into that seat. So it was kind of a, uh, a Herculean run. And before I get to the like president job at Click, at this point, you're riding a 10-year hot hand. Have you missed a quarter yet? You're 40 quarters in. You might have missed yeah. a quarter yet. Yeah, as an individual seller, it was really successful, Ron. Yeah. And then the first taste of real challenge was when I went to Optier. Optier, you know, it's true startup. There was maybe a couple hundred of us, right? And that was hard. That was evangelical selling. It was nice to have, it was cool, but it wasn't quantifiably valuable. There wasn't a big customer base. And we had some success, but it was first time it was like, every quarter isn't gonna be a blowout. And that was hard. And that was right before Joe called and moved me in. 
And then I would say it was hard learning how to build a business leveraging a partner ecosystem, which I hadn't done before. It was all large enterprise direct. But yeah, we we didn't miss quarters though. And in fact, I think in the whole time at Click as a leader, I don't think we ever missed a quarter. How was your mojo? 30 years old, are you feeling like the man? Okay, I'm going to be the president of this company. I can't miss right now. Where was your head at? That's a great question. No, you know, my brain doesn't work that way. I also don't think five steps ahead. I know a lot of execs are that way. Like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to accomplish this. I very much feel like I'm still that kid that is laying brick, and I figure if I do this really well, good things will happen. I'll have a really nice wall. And so I kind of stay focused on what I was doing and just trying to be great at it. And that, for me, throughout my career, opportunity has come to me versus me seeking it out. And I also have enough people around me to humble me that help keep me grounded, that even though I was young and I knew I was having some success, you're also you know, a dad and five kids. And this time, there's nothing more humbling than realizing, man, like, I fall short all the time on the most important job in the world and trying to figure out that balance of being present and being there and working your ass off the way that you know you need to. And so I had plenty of things to humble me. So I don't think I was like, oh, I'm the man as much as I was, and this is true, this is real, as much as I was, man, I'm grateful. Like, how did I get here? I'm this kid that I could just as easy be driving a cab. And I've always felt that way. And then I would also say, I always felt like I was one bad quarter away from somebody taking it all away. (laughs) I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Like my wife, Chrissy, tells a story how I called her from California one night saying, hey, babe, I need you to pray for me. Man, I'm feeling down. I feel like I'm going to get fired here. This was like third year in a click. And I said, this quarter's coming down to the wire. It's stressful. Just the way the internal clock, I was feeling that pressure. The next week, she left because at our house was a package with a award for Sal's leader of the quarter. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> so she's like, what is this? I was like, oh, we, we ended up crushing on the corner. She's like, how do you live in that universe yeah. of feeling like you're going to fail yet achieving? And I can't explain it outside of I've always operated with the sense of, gratitude for what I have, but not at all a sense of either entitlement or that it can't be taken all away. And so that has always been driving me to stay on my toes. You know, the classic sales question of, do you love to win or do you hate to lose? And that question was often posed to me in interviews throughout my career. And my answer, which I suppose now is the right answer, is that I hate to lose. And when you know what real losing feels like, when you know what nothing really feels like. Feeling hungry. You don't want that feeling again. Yeah. I've never verbalized this before. This is the first time I would say this because I think I would always answer the question just as you did, which is it's not the love of winning. It's the hatred of losing. I actually think it's the fear of losing for me. It's not so much I hate it. It's that 
scared of being found out somehow. This feeling of like that somehow you're not as good as people think you are yeah. uh, kind of a thing. And that somehow you're eventually going to fail. Yeah. And it's that proving that internal thing wrong, that every time you you answer the bell, and that's that fear of, you Well, know, you don't want to give it air. Can I tell you a personal story? Yeah. I was always the young guy. Managed my first team at 22, and then had different leadership positions. When I was 26, I was managing all the old white guys across the central Midwest, <laughs> yeah. all the enterprise reps. And I was, I don't know if insecure was the right word, but I certainly felt imposter syndrome. And it was a mix of, I can't believe this is happening and I probably don't belong here. And who messed this decision up? But also I was like, no, f you. And they're yeah. going to they're gonna bleep that out. But like, I also, I know I've earned the right to be here. And piggybacking on what you were just saying, I never wanted to miss a quarter or anybody on my team because it gave, like at Palo Alto Networks, it was an old school culture still. And I was the youngest district manager in the history of the company. That didn't sit well with people. That was not a good feeling for people. Right. <laughs> and nobody liked that. They don't like the young guy doing that stuff. And I felt that at all times in every way possible. You know, I got topped several times. They tried to ship me to Singapore. Like the amount of things that happened along the way. And no one gave me credibility. Anytime I commit a deal, I always had the most eyes on it. The most people calling me. That never happened with anybody else. I always had the inspection that nobody else did. And I always tried to go above and beyond and deliver because I was so scared of giving those voices air. I didn't want to do that. That's what I was so scared of, is validating that they were right. Yeah. It's crazy. You're 100% spot on, man. It's crazy because in one sense, I have definitely felt like one of my superpowers was security. This feeling of no matter what room I walked into, I'm comfortable in my own skin. And no matter what happens, I am who I am. And that security has been a real blessing for the way I lead, the way I built teams, being able to surround myself with people that were smarter than me or better than me and not worrying like, hey, what are they thinking about me? I never cared. The only person that I would say can give me insecurity is myself. It's crazy. I could walk into a room of executives and, and have a board and I'm on and I don't have any sense of intimidation or second guessing. Do they think I belong? Don't they think I belong? There's one voice and only one voice that can spur on that fear. And it's my own in my head of, do you belong? Are you going to get found out? Are you good enough? And that's the thing that has been like the fear of, I don't want to give that voice power or breath. So when you did app dynamics, it was a year and a half. Is that right? Yeah. That's the shortest stint you've had. Yep. And probably the area I would say I learned more than anywhere I've ever worked. Bar none. Probably the best experience out of all of my time working. So to know app dynamics is a ridiculous plethora of sales talent. Go look at Jeremy Duggan. He's advising a lot of companies now and president of a company. And you got Dolly's running Zscaler, president of Zscaler. 
You have Spencer Tuttle, who I hire. He's now running ThoughtSpot. Myself, you have Tom Schmidt. He's running Audit Board. I mean, there's so many sales leaders that have come from AppDynamics. I'm like incredibly grateful for the time there. I got very close with David Wadwani, who is brilliant. A Parm, he's running Data Robot and the team. I mean, it's crazy how much that group was. By the time I got to AppD, I had had a lot of success. And there were things that I had, I would say, in spades. Ability to recruit great people, great talent, natural curiosity, understood go-to-market, understood how to leverage a partner ecosystem, understood the sales motion. One of the things that I learned in that period of time that I had never really mastered is how to take the things that I knew intuitively and the things that I did intuitively as a really successful rep and then as a leader, how I led people and how to programmatize it, how to make it into a repeatable program from recruit to retain to driving revenue systematically. How do you go build an organization and a enterprise sales execution machinery around that? And I learned a, a bunch of that from Jeremy Duggan and from Dolly. I think I brought probably a lot to App Dynamics. If you ask them or David, I think they would say, you know, I had a really successful run there, like crazy. We were operating 177% of plan. Wow. It was nuts. But I brought certain things to that culture that I think was new to that culture around what I would say around certain vulnerability and authenticity of like just jumping in, building some familial culture to the organization. But what I learned and took away from there, I built at ThoughtSpot, I built here at Rubric, this systematic approach, which actually goes back probably to John McMahon in the approach of how to drive a leading indicator culture to sales execution. And how do you embed that into the culture of the business? How do you embed a culture that's really heavily invested in developing and coaching talent on skill and will systematically, not one-off, not because I'm really good at coaching, not because I'm really good at communicating, but how do you create a whole system around onboarding, driving productivity faster, improving sales execution? And another person, Scott Davis, he originally was at Apti when I went there and left shortly afterwards, but another guy who I learned a lot from. And just around the systematic process execution component that I think combining the things that I knew intuitively with the systematic approach has been a real success for me. But if you were blowing out plan at 177%, did you get fired? Did oh, you no. leave? No, no, no. You left. Yeah, yeah. So, and it was good. So that's a, that's another thing that I would say about the team, including David at App Dynamics. They were supportive of their best people going and getting good opportunities. Going and getting world class opportunities. I want you to make sense of something for me, and I want you just your opinion on it. Maybe a year ago, I was struggling at Kleiner because I got so much energy from my job because I loved building teams and leading and making people's careers and watching people be successful 
beyond what they thought was possible. That filled me beyond just a career. That was all of me. And at Kleiner, for a long time, I was an individual contributor again. That was the point. I wanted to go back to the roots and rebuild a muscle and a stronger foundation and base that was broader to rebuild back up. And I was struggling because I missed that feeling deeply. I was picking a woman's brain. Her name's Kara Nortman, if you're listening, Kara. She's the managing partner of Front Ventures, a venture firm in LA. And I was asking her, I said, Kara, what do you think? These are the emotions that I'm feeling right now. I just kind of want to jump back in the saddle. I want to get in the arena again and build with people. And she said, you, sh you should stay in venture. Like, you're crazy. This job is tailor-made for you. And I go, okay, well, what about this feeling? I can't shake this feeling. And she goes, Jubin, you can get that feeling outside of your work and your career. That feeling that it gives to you of leadership, of creating something, of building something, of helping others, whatever that is, you don't need that in your job. That was the first time I ever thought about it that way. And I want to ask you because you seem to get so much out of your job and it doesn't feel like a job to you. And, it, and my job doesn't feel like a job to me. It really doesn't right now. And I just wanted to get your opinion on, because that was the first thing. She's like, I started a soccer team in LA. And it's the women's professional soccer team there. And she's like, that gives me all of that. I invest so much in that and building and creating that. And she's like, it doesn't have to be your job. Your job can just be your job. For sure. I don't know. What do you make of that? I think she's right. Everybody has some creative juice in them in some way. My wife paints creates beautiful kids, but everybody has some need to fulfill some outlet of seeing their work grow. It's a natural thing anthropologically as people from the earliest people, seeing outcomes of what you do and seeing that it pays off. It's the very core of work in general is there is some purpose to this. I'm having some outcome that's meaningful. I 100% agree that it doesn't have to be at your full-time job, but there is a matter of creative function of seeing, you know, investing in something and seeing it improve. And I would tell you, I get it multiple outlets. I get it from my kids seeing like impact that you can make on the kids. I see it through advising companies, sitting down with other CROs or CEOs and having conversations with them that are saying, hey, here's some things that you can do. Here's a framework. Here's a profile. Here are the things that are important to go look for in great sellers. Or here's how I set up and drive South stages and a culture of winning stages. And here's a skill will approach to go. And then seeing those companies utilize some of that, you know, throw away some, but utilize some and say, and it makes an impact. You get that same function, whether you are the actual doer or you're just somebody that's giving some guidance or some advice. So I think there's multiple ways to feed that beast, but I wouldn't ignore the call. And that's what I would call on your heart to make a meaningful impact on people's lives. Because that's ultimately, when I interview people for leadership, if Mike Ernest is listening, you know, he's a VP now over at Zscaler, but I remember when he was like a first line guy and we were talking about promoting a bunch of folks. And I first walked him through this around, I feel like 
first-line sales leaders fall into one of two buckets. They're either running from sales, <laughs> they're running from the arena because they had a really good quarter, a really good year, and they're trying to capitalize on it because they don't think they can keep it up quarter after quarter, year after year, and they want to mitigate their risk. And so they go become a sales leader that's mediocre. But they look at it and they say, hey, enterprise software is filled with mediocre leaders. <laughs> you can hide out for two, three years, get found out, go somewhere else for two to three years. It's, it's amazing. And there's safety in that. And so they go for the safety. And then you have this other group that are going. And these ones are lions. They're out there not for safety. They're out there to go make an impact. They want to see return on their investment. They typically are people that are jumping into it because they want to invest in people materially and see them become great. They care about them becoming great. And they also know that if they do that really well, they can then grow in their careers. Because if you can become a great leader, a great teacher, a great coach that can help people become consciously competent at skill sets, then you can grow and teach leaders how to do that and then teach leaders of leaders. And I always want to hire those people. I always want to hire the people of the bucket that are like mission-driven, that say, I want to do that. I want to invest in people. I want to make other people great because I'm running to it, not running from something. And it becomes a call because it's the hardest job in the world. Okay, it's not the hardest job in the world. Digging ditches is hard. There's a lot of hard stuff. In enterprise software, being an SDR is really hard. Being a first-line sales leader is really hard. And owning the number yeah, is really, it's really hard. I've talked to a lot of sales leaders, not just in the format of the podcast, for the portfolio. And I talked to a ton that thankfully are listeners of the show. They reach out, Jubin, I'd love to come work for the portfolio. I talk to them. First question I ask, why are you doing this? And I literally go into like, this is a pretty shitty job. Obviously, there's to your point, there's a lot worse. But being an enterprise AE is a lot better. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's, it's a lot. It's the best like job probably, in the world. Yeah, you probably, it's the best job in the world. I say that all the time to my I'm like, dude, are you sure you want to leave this job? If you're a good seller, being an enterprise AE is the best job in the world. You can cut your own lawn and still make a million bucks. Yes. It's amazing. Yes, yes. And no one tells you what to do. You're absolutely. always the one. Yeah, You're absolutely. always the one that's getting the accolades, yep. going to president's clubs, yep. and customers love you. Yep. And so I asked him, I'm like, you miss a quarter? Starts with you. Product's not there? That's your fault. Lose a rep? You're a bad manager. One bad board presentation? Board doesn't like you. Lose your sales ops guy? That's on you. Or gal. Over and over, it's like, why are you doing this? I always try to understand what happened to you that makes you so invested to overcome all of the shit. Yeah, why would you do it? Why no, I to it? totally agree. And that's the question to ask people is like, what is driving you? What's motivating you to be in sales leadership? Because if it's for the glory, it's the wrong spot, man. If it's for the glory where you're going to throw on the cape and try to jump in at the end of sales cycles and close deals, that's not good leadership. If you're willing to jump into the messy, if you're willing to jump into the front end of the funnel, you're willing to jump in, help your reps build PG plans, help them elevate their conversation, help them build territory plans and account plans, go on the first meeting, not just the last meeting, well, that's a hard job. And that requires a commitment to teaching, to coaching, to developing, and it's busy. 
and it's hard to do. And you're only going to do it if it's like a vocation. And your vocation, it's a mission of like, I'm committed to seeing this person become great and helping them remove obstacles at times, getting out of their way at times, and investing in, in the front end hard stuff. And that's what we do at Rubric, at ThoughtSpot. Like these are the things that we preached is the foundation of building great enterprise companies is in building great leadership. If you have great leadership that invest in people that care about their hopes, their dreams, their development, their career succession, their goals, and that you're willing to teach them how to be consciously competent, not just to float through the South cycle, but to know in, by both science and intuition of like, these are the things that lead to highest productivity yields. If you do these things and do these things well consistently, you're always going to be great. You give them gifts they will have for the rest of their life. <laughs> and if you're great at teaching and that person as a seller has that aptitude, want to learn, but also wants to go into leadership, the impact's amazing. And this is my point about app dynamics is that you can build tons of companies. You go look at the John McMahon effect or any of these great sales leaders, how many people from that tree that became consciously competent, that understood the inputs, that got the right outputs, and came from that school of learning, teaching, coaching, have gone on to build tons of incredible companies, incredible shareholder value. That's the opportunity. So when you go dig into a rep, it's not just to help them make their quota. It's to understand what do you want out of life? Where do you want to be? And for those hypos, those people that could go on to be CEO, CRO, running companies, you have a chance to make that meaningful impact in yeah. their life. And that's what I think you love to surround yourself with that kind of creative function. And so that's my point. If you have that itch, there's other ways to do it. Like your friend had mentioned, not just with work, but do scratch the itch because yeah. you have so much to give that People need that mission from you. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. And I agree with you. And to your point, I do get to scratch that. And I've said this on the show a bunch, but I some ways have the best job in the world because I am at a place where every year we hit refresh on 30 new entrepreneurs trying to create something out of nothing in a vision of the world that they have 10 years from now. And all I do is spend my time with those people. And then folks like you who are operating to help them build those companies. I love it. I think that's pretty good. You tell your team I love you? Yeah. Yeah. A Come lot. on. Yeah. Like you hang up the phone like, all right. Love you. Love you. Some people like at first are like, holy shit, did he just say I love you? <laughs> it's like, uh, but like last night, this will be a somber point. We had a um, person on our team die last night. A leader in North Central, first line leader, car accident on the way home from the airport, a training and development that we did for our leaders. Last night. Last night, I'm just sorry. last night. Yeah, super sad, great man, really good leader, good human being, great father, couple kids, wife of more than 25 years, Nicole. And it was super sad, it's emotional because, you know, obviously here today and gone tomorrow and you realize how finite life is. And unlike maybe my dad or other people that diagnosed with something have time, this is, you know, the team was all together with out in San Francisco for three days this week doing leadership development training. And he's there 
having beers and, you know, enjoying life, having conversations, talking about barbecue and he had a passion for smoking meat and metal fabricating and building barbecue and, and having all these conversations, one developing, getting better. The guy was great at his craft, rebuilt the whole team, four straight quarters of crush and plan, and yet gone in an instant. And the only thing that's left is love. Really, that's it. He loved his team. His team followed him. He built that team because he loved them and they loved him. And he loved his daughters and he loved his wife. And that's what people are going to remember about him. And when I say I love you to folks and why it's such a cornerstone of my leadership style, it doesn't mean a couple of things. One, it doesn't mean I romantically desire friendship with you. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that I mushy love you. The kind of love I'm talking about is benevolent love. And what benevolent love means is I desire the best for you. That's it. That's what it means. To love somebody means I desire what is good for you. And I don't even need to know you intimately or know you super personally to be able to make a decision and a choice that says, I desire your good. And so, yeah, I mean, I was on with a loke who runs worldwide sales engineering for me at Rubric last night. I said, dude, I love you, man. And he returned. I said, I love you too. And I said, I'm sorry, man, this is super hard and sent a note out to the whole field today, right before I came here on this call saying, I love you all. And I mean it. I'm sad that Dave's not with us, you know, and I didn't really know him well. I was maybe on a couple calls. We have a I have 900 people on my team, right? I didn't, I didn't get a chance. I wish I did. I didn't get a chance to meet everybody. But here's a person that was that committed to the mission, poured out his life working and loving his team and, and his folks. And we were grateful for him. And, you know, it's sad, but that's real life. The reality is in between hitting quarters and selling tons of software. And look, we're in a bit of a hurricane winds at our back at Rubrik. Ransomware is off the charts. Cyber and data security has never been more important. We're crushing quarters, blowing through numbers massively. However, all that being said, in the midst of all that, people are going through divorce. People are having babies. People are getting married. People are having people in their family deal with mental illness or sickness. People are losing loved ones. And the reality is when you're building these companies, you can't ignore the fact that real life happens. Real life is happening all around this. And if you can't recognize that, understand that, and incorporate that into your culture and be leave room for vulnerability, leave room for people to be messy, leave room for the reality that things are going on in people's personal lives, that they're not always their best every, you know, every call every week, but have their back and allow them to be human then it's only work. <laughs> then it's only a job. Then they're only a number. They're only an employee. And so for me, that I love you as a foundation, what it means is I care about you. I care about your hopes and your dreams, your career aspirations. I care about your family. I care about what you want to be. 
And my job as a leader of this company is to provide and enable an atmosphere and a culture and a company that you can thrive in, that we can help you achieve those hopes, goals, and dreams. And that doesn't mean, uh, this is the confusion part I get all the time, it doesn't mean that we're not a super high bar, drive into execution, high expectations. It's actually quite the opposite. I've learned that to be able to challenge people to do something great, to be able to execute at a high level, to hold people accountable to delivering what they say they're going to deliver, to challenge them to be great at the little things and the steps and to be willing to coach them up on PG excellence and winning stage one and winning stage two of the deal and developing champions and get to an economic buyer and building good three whys or business cases. To be able to have those conversations and for that person to be willing to be coached, the very foundation of it is this person who's trying to coach me cares about me. Because if they don't believe that you are trying to help them, if they don't believe that you have their best interest at heart, that your vested interest is to see them achieve. They get defensive. They shut down. Their natural inclination is, screw you. The first inclination is, this person's trying to micromanage me. This yeah. person's trying to tell me what to do. But you could have that very same conversation. And if that person on the receiving end of that coaching conversation thinks, all Brian cares about is seeing that I'm successful in what I want to be. And I told Brian that I want to be 200% a plan. And this is my goal. And the reason for it, I want to buy a new house, or I want to do this, or I want, here's my career aspiration. And so he's talking to me, not out of punitive or trying to drive me. He's talking to me in a way that can help me get to where I want to go. And if you're tuned into the same frequency and the message going out is able to be received, then you can make a meaningful impact in their life. Then you can coach. And that is what I feel is missing in a lot of coaching cultures that say we're all about coaching, we're all about teaching, but really what they mean is we're about yelling at the scoreboard. You're not doing this well. You're not doing this well. You're not doing this well. But if you change and put as the foundation, my intention isn't to yell at metrics or yell at scoreboard. It's actually to help you get where you want to go. You build a team of like a lot of loyalty, a lot of more people have more success and they're much more willing to be coached. And that's why I think it's a foundational pillar of, you know, the way I like to lead at least. I'm listening to you right now and I'm like, this guy needs to be the CEO of a client or portfolio company. Like it's kind of blowing me away. Why do you keep doing this CRO thing? What are your aspirations from here? Well, I was at ThoughtSpot. I had a number of VCs call and ask about like, hey, are you interested in the CEO gig? And there is aspects of it, for sure, that interest me. And maybe at some point in time after this run, maybe that will be something that I would do right now. I'm going to come live in Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm going to literally exactly. come move next door and make yeah. sure, yeah, I'm camping out, yeah. But right now, I love this element of the business. And one of the things that I've found is I joke with Bipple about this all the time. As CRO, the reality is like everybody works for sales. The company is built around sales. You're engaged with product management, 
you're engaged with marketing, you're engaged with obviously with people, uh, people management, onboarding, you're very engaged with legal and finance. Kieran and I, who's our CFO, are hooked at the hip, best friends. We talk every day. And the difference between, I guess, CEO and CRO is about, I guess, reporting structure, but not influence. Your ability to influence the business is only hindered by what you're willing to do, <laughs> what you're willing to invest in your time and jump in. And I've kind of take the leadership approach of there is no swim lanes. I'm responsible for sales and for partners and alliances, and that's my org structure. But as an executive, my my function is at all functions. My responsibility, and this is what Bipa would say if you asked him, is is to influence and to lead all aspects of the business. And that's not just because I run sales. I would say the same thing for Dan or Kieran or Lillian or whoever as an executive team. And for an executive team to be highly functioning, it's not about running in silos. It's about one team coming together to run the business, all aspects of the business, to influence each other's silos and functions. But that one team is the team. And yeah, you're responsible for going and delivering and hitting numbers. But ultimately, at least the way I lead as a CRO is to build a great company, an iconic company. And so at some point in time, maybe that'll be a, a CEO opportunity. But right now, I just think what we have going on at Rubric and the opportunity that we have and the ability to make meaningful impact on our sellers and our partners and our customers is unique. And that's why I, I kind of jumped at the opportunity. Honestly, your leadership style is so compelling that I genuinely don't think I need to even give a Rubric commercial, but I want you to take 30 seconds to like, what does Rubric do? And then if you're listening and you're excited to yeah. come join, are you hiring? And Yeah, absolutely. So we are absolutely hiring. Yeah. Can't hire fast enough. We have uh, our year ends at the end of January. As I said, we have a bit of hurricane winds at our back. <laughs> I would love to say, hey, man, nine months in, I've been a miracle worker and this place has taken off. I mean, we're talking about north of 50% growth at a company with We'll do more than 700 million in bookings this year, but just tremendous growth. And it's about what we are doing right now is meaningful and matters. It's on the news. We're tackling what is in every boardroom, which is protecting customers' data from ransomware, from bad actors, ensuring that their data is secure. And if we ensure their data, we're ensuring their business because we're ensuring that they can stay up and running, that they don't have to shut down, that they're resilient, they can continue to run when bad actors act, which they do. And so that's the space that we're in. We're growing so fast and crushing some numbers so well, so much so that by July, which was our mid-year point, we had pulled forward all of FY23 headcount, which is next year's headcount, then hired to that, and now we're pulling in more. We just open up a bunch of more headcount. So we have about 30 AEs. We pair AEs and SEs around the world that we just opened up, which puts us at about 50 sellers above what we started the year. 
as plan to hire, uh, <laughs> just because we, we've, we've run through and beat plan so convincingly f- through the first three quarters of the year. So yeah, great opportunity. It's a great place to work. The culture is really, really rooted in what I just talked about, which is personal development, coaching, continue to create an opportunity for people to grow from within, continue to promote from within. And the goal is to build the next great enterprise software company, an iconic company over the next three years, being a billion and a half ARR company that's a wildly successful publicly traded company continuing to grow is the vision and the plan. That's something that people want to be a part of. You can reach out to me personally on LinkedIn and I'll get you hooked up with uh, the hiring managers for the local regions. What does the word grit mean to you? Grit? To me, I have to give a shout out to uh, Tom Schmidt. He's the CRO of Audit Board. And he did a talk one time on grit and gratitude. And in many ways, the two things go very much hand in hand. And it was about his mom who had passed away. And that was the lessons that his mom had given him really around grit and gratitude. Grit, to me, is rooted in a deep belief that you will be successful on the other end of failure. And I talk about something called the five C's, which I stole from Scott Davis, so I don't want to plagiarize. But the five C's, one of those C's is called commitment. And commitment could be interchangeable with grit. And what that means is that you're willing to gnaw off your arm before failing, that you're climbing a mountain. And on the other side of the mountain is wild success. But way too often, people quit. (laughs) And then somebody else comes in, they swoop in and they find easy success somehow. Don't know how, oh, what was on the back of somebody that was working through the hard stuff but gave up too soon. The most successful people, most successful sellers are ones that have great perseverance, but also belief and vision to burn the boats, to persevere and march forward through what's hard because they believe on the other side is wild success. And to me, that's grit. And then I would just throw in gratitude only because for people to be able to be successful through the hard and the messy and have that grit, they have to have a sense of gratitude, of appreciation. Otherwise, what happens is you become disillusioned in the messy. And all you see is the hard. You need to be able to be thankful for the opportunity have the vision for what's ahead so that you can work through what's hard to achieve success. One of the coolest episodes I've ever done. Brian, thank you. Thank you. I love being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks uh, for having me. That was amazing. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.